Welcome to Get Object. My name is Paul. Um, Rosie is not here today. Instead, I am here with Darren Anderson. Thank you very much for joining me, Darren. Thank you. So, um, the reason Darren's, Darren's come on, um, so just, just to give Pete listeners a bit of context. So, I've spoken to Darren before about his his previous book, Imaginary Cities, on my other podcast, Utopian Horizons. And I've been kind of following him on, on Twitter and was, was vaguely aware of, of, of what he was doing. So, so yeah, Darren, I know you were, had this vague idea that you were doing a book um, maybe about Derry or possibly about your family. And, and I knew you were potentially doing something about rooms and I wasn't sure whether that was the same book or or something else entirely and then um just just after we started this podcast looking at objects and games I then realized that your your new book which is called uh inventory is actually a book about objects um and yeah just felt like something of a bit of a synchronicity so I thought it'd be fun to to kind of talk to Darren about the the process of of looking at things through objects so just to get started so I've, I've kind of I've kind of run through things that I vaguely had an idea your, your book was about as you were working on it but can you tell us what the book actually is about uh well it's I guess if imaginary cities was sort of lots of different cities whether in real life or or kind of um in speculation um then then inventory is one city and it's it's a city that I grew up in, Derry, in Northern Ireland. Um, and it's focusing in on it through over the period of several generations from my grandparents to to uh, the present day. And uh, so that covers the period of this, the sort of Second World War um, and the Troubles and then the aftermath and the legacy of the Troubles. Um, so I, I grew up as a boy and at a time when there was the conflict and division of the troubles was happening and my father and my my entire family actually were were involved in and pulled into all that um and i guess everybody was in that in that part of the world um so it's a it's a kind of memoir about growing up as a child in the midst of this kind of dysfunction but finding your way nonetheless and you, and you know you're going you're going through everything that everyone else is doing so you're playing video games and falling mm. in love and forming bands and but there's this yeah. kind of madness that's going on swirling around you so you're in the eye of the, the eye of this kind of storm uh, but the book it looks at um, memory the kind of subjectivity of memory so part of the book is looking at how the traumas of the past and uh, the complexities of the past have been kind of buried to an extent and when you talk to people they have just so many different stories that contradict one another and you know nobody seems to have the same um same recollection of things um so in a way the book is is very very much about memory but because we're dealing with uh memories that are painful to people you know memories of people who've died or memories of times in in jail or you know having witnessed terrible things uh, I, it's very, very hard to approach directly, and people tend to put their guard up immediately. Um, they've got sort of psychological defenses to talking mm. about this stuff. So I thought that it would be a, a good way, a good kind of sideways way in, would be if 
we talked about objects so that we, the book is ostensibly about these objects but really it's about all this other stuff um, that seems kind of insurmountable if you try and take it on directly uh, and it, it came the objects thing it, it was inspired by a George Perrick quote where he said I mean the book was totally based on this quote more or less um, he said uh, make an inventory of the things in your pockets where did they come from where are they going to go after you finish with them what's their what's their kind of story and their provenance and he's a writer I've admired for a long time and I was just fascinated by this idea of uh, the object having a kind of aura or a story innately sort of within it um, and then realizing of course that they don't they're just junk that we're kind of projecting stuff onto or extracting stuff from so so the the objects were were a way in but they weren't um as as kind of uh the, the original reasons weren't as as sort of convoluted i guess or or pretentious it was it was more naturalistic because my father is uh he became a gardener um and he worked in the local the city cemetery he still mm -hmm. works there actually as a kind of groundsman and he would be digging up plots and uh you know working with the soil and he would very often uh, on a weekly basis he would find things so he would find old gas masks from the war or rubber bullets mm -hmm. from the troubles or old radios or you know just just these antiques and bric-a-brac and he would bring them home he was a he was a bit of a hoarder uh so he would he would bring these objects home and my sister and i would play with them and we would wonder where they came from and they seemed such mysterious things this kind of flotsam and jetsam that he came home with and he eventually you know he filled the house with his stuff and and uh it's strange now i've spent the last 20 years since leaving Derry, uh sort of living a very sort of i, I just wander <laughs> Uh, I, I haven't really had one base, so I, I've just lived out of a out of a suitcase for about twenty years in various different cities and countries. And uh, I thought it was just a kind of puzzle that my dad was this kind of hoarder. He had all these possessions from all different times and origins, and yet I am living out of I have all the possessions <laughs> I have in the world <laughs> fit into this yeah. small box. So, so the objects thing, it just seemed. Um, like a really interesting way of not just looking at the past, but kind of looking at myself and my father and my my whole family, basically. Okay, that's all really interesting. And yeah, I mean, not it's not as um. So this idea of like objects being a, a way into things, we found on this on doing this show as well. It's something people are really um willing to talk about because I, I think we, we found on our we, we've both got other shows, and I think some be people can be um kind of a bit bit more intimidated or reluctant to to sort of get you know to to give their own suggestions and talk about things when it feels like you're talking about some i don't know complicated like theory some some uh some intricate reading but just talking about an object people are really willing and uh, and if it's yeah you know, like you say they obviously this isn't the same thing as like having a traumatic memory that you don't want to confront but 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 people um they, they feel like they're talking about something very easy and concrete and then once you start talking about the object then all these other things come out of it like these um 
personal stories or connections or or like symbolism um so you, yeah we we've in a there's, different way to you Sorry, yeah there's this there's a there there is a kind of psychological psychological diversion that happens where people's defenses will naturally come up or or they'll they'll have a standard story for something uh, that mm. they've kind of reconciled and that becomes the definitive version and if you if you come through the objects it's so oblique in angle that the defenses are come down a little bit or you there's a sort of um you're allowing the person more space uh there's a a good example i can't remember the name of the documentary but there's a Werner herzog's a big hero of mine's and there's a documentary where he goes and talks to people in death row and he talks to kind of ministers who you know do the, the the kind of last rites to the people after they're executed or uh the prison correction officers um and he talks to all these people and and he's talking to i think it's a pastor who ministers to these people in their last days and the pastor has all these previously formulated answers and mm. because Werner Herzog's a very unusual filmmaker um, and he's a very clever filmmaker he allows the pastor to answer for a little while and then he just asks him tell me a story about squirrels <laughs> and it totally disarms the pastor and ends up telling this beautiful little vignette and it's just a it's just he just pushes something sideways enough uh so that the the formulas that we concoct it i mean it works for trauma but i guess we all have a story in our minds um and this is one thing that came through right in inventory is is that memory to me seems a form of storytelling that we tell ourselves um, and memory and maybe history is the same on a kind of on a grand level a societal level we tell ourselves these kind of stories of the past so we tend to think as, of memory and history as what happened in the past but really it's mm -hmm. our stories about what happened in the past and these are subject to kind of selective editing there's an element of fiction will uh you know wishful thinking will seep into that and gradually distort things um so again the subjectivity we, we live kind of objective factual existence but looking back upon that a certain degree of subjectivity happens so we t tend to tell ourselves the stories that we want to have happened or just you know we, we tweak it enough so that it becomes so that it's not traumatic i think trauma is is the inability to tell yourself a reconcilable story about the past it stays raw it never really heals and you know you can't approach it so there is this um slightly subjective way of the the, the subjective nature of memory that i that i really dig into um mm. <clears throat> but you can get around those stories if you come at a at a strange angle and, and objects seems to be one of those angles sure did you is it right that you were originally planning to do this um with rooms no the the rooms is a different book um ah, okay will, okay uh, will eventually come out so it's it's a more it's a it's a strange book it's like walking through a big kind of haunted house and each chapter is a different room but uh the difficulty of selling a concept like that to publishers is so tricky so um i'm going to make a 
a bit more headway with other books i think before we we um we released that one but that's that's a different one this okay. this book was originally supposed to be um a book about the river so it was a very Sebaldian robert mcfarlane kind of book about uh the almost like a nature book but it was very kind of elegiac and strange there was a magic realist element to it there was a chapter for example all about all the airmen during the second world war who who died in the river there's a tendency of the planes to crash in the river and mm. the chapter was told by the sort of an airman who was in his plane at the bottom of the river so it was a really odd book uh but mm. i i submitted i mean i wrote it i went to australia and wrote it and um came back and was thinking though this is a book that like no one's written before i mean it has elements of say bold and whoever but um the publisher was just completely bemused <laughs> i just couldn't understand what you know because i tried to write about troubles and trauma and all that between the lines so it was a really subliminal kind of book and it was very strange and poetic and uh they just didn't know what to do with it so it, it sort of sat in development hell for a couple of years and um eventually just out of frustration i wrote very quickly wrote inventory the objects idea just the minute I had that idea, it's mm. almost like having a manifesto where you you give the work structure. Yeah. Um, it just became really easy to write because if you're approaching a subject with childhood, there's just so much. It's like, where do you begin? You could, you know, yeah. it's almost paralyzing because it's, there's just, the subject is so nebulous. Yeah. But the minute that you force yourself to have limitations, the minute you say this chapter has to have an object, Mm. and the object has to carry the weight um that weirdly limitations weirdly open up the, the process so i wrote it like in three weeks and it just kind of wrote itself after a little while so um again the structure of the objects was was really helpful but it was almost like when you read about those art movements that you know the the dogma one in film or or the futurists where they, they sort of they fix themselves into a box almost. Um, and that has a weirdly liberating, it sounds so counterintuitive, but that has a liberating thing because it focuses all your attentions in one, one space. No, yeah, I know what you mean for sure. Was it, was it when you um, sat on that idea, was it easy for you in terms of like choosing what objects you wanted to include? Like, was there some kind of, I mean, was it really quickly, I want to do this, 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 this. Was there some like process of like what objects you wanted to include, or, or were you the looking for particular? Were you looking to approach a subject and then trying to find an object for it, or, or something like that? There, there were mostly it was finding the object first. Okay. So there's lots and lots and lots. There's again an infinite amount of stories that aren't in the book and stories that weren't able to go in the book because they're too kind of painful or they're too potentially um litigatious uh, yeah, yeah. so but the they came about in a very natural way the first story was the first chapter the, fir the first object was the first chapter which was the the radio so uh my father repaired this old radio and i came a long wave one that had this beautiful dial that it told you all the different transmission 
stations around the world and you could turn the dial. I, I've got one like that, yeah. Oh, yeah, they're fantastic. So it would take you. You mean I get lists of like cities and stuff on it or something? The actual like cities, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so you'd be in Algeria and then you would turn it and you're suddenly in Egypt or yeah. or you're in Istanbul and then you turn it again. You're in, And in those days, I mean, some of the cities, the names have changed. Like Peking isn't called that anymore. The yeah. Soviet Union doesn't exist. But you'd be able to, in my memory, I remember tuning into these places, you know, but, but, that's possibly a sort of projection in my in my behalf, but I, you know, the the far flung places. But I definitely used to listen into European stations, and there was a kind of poetry to the the language, the the fact that you you couldn't understand the language. It, it, you know, the, these could have been like weather reports, but they sounded so mysterious and enigmatic. Um, and when you heard a song, you had no idea because it's in a different language. You'd probably never hear it again. So there's this wonderful transience to it all. But we, we also noticed, I mean, I, I discovered that you could hear the army, the army's transmissions on the long wave at certain frequencies. So I used to listen into the army patrols as they were going past Mm. and you would hear a lot of the kind of code that that the army and the police have that, you know, I couldn't work out as a young boy, but Mm. It turns out that my father had discovered the same thing and used to listen in just kind of as a as a kind of hobby. It's almost like train spotting or something, you know, listening into the army to see what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, and he discovered that uh, he actually discovered that my grandmother uh, had gone missing or someone had been seen going into the river. Um, and he heard that from, you know, spying in on these frequencies on the radio. Um, and we later found out that my grandmother committed suicide in the river. So okay. that radio, the minute that, that that story, you know, um, was always in my head for, for years and years, that was the first one and that was the way in. And then the rest of the objects just came naturally. Like most of them aren't as dark as that. Mm. And, uh, and actually I have great fondness for the memory of the radio. I have no idea where the radio went. Perhaps it's out, someone else owns it. You know, it could be in a rubbish dump somewhere, but it could be in someone's house. Someone could be listening into it today. I yeah. don't know. But uh, the the rest of the objects, I mean, some have wonderful memories attached to them. Some have very kind of um, dark memories. But in a way, it's just, it, the objects thing. It's a kind of response to Walter Benjamin's uh, famous quote from the essay on mechanical reproduction where he talks about in the age of industrialization and mass production objects lose their aura he calls it a kind of soul or kind of intrinsic meaning or intrinsic idiosyncratic worth or value Mm -hmm. you know because in medieval times people would have individually made objects they would all be different they would sort of be invested with all these orders that the craftsperson had put into them um but with factory made things there they lose this aura according to benjamin and and i, I kind of disagreed because for me the aura was it's still there and you project it the owner projects it onto the object and it becomes saturated by whatever happens around it or the time that it's in and even the most kind of like reproduced thing in the world over time will gather a kind of aura to it uh just because it's older because it's survived its owners so 
for example, junk from the past. I'm fascinated by this idea of mudlarking in the Thames. I've been talking to mudlarks recently, and in the Keynesian times, it was like really poor street children would do it, and now it's a kind of hobby of um, of sort of uh, academics. And they go to London, the, the tide lines in London, and they and they sift through the debris that they find, and they find just stuff from all these different centuries in the past but all these different incarnations of london and some of the objects are junk but even the junk tells us a great deal about the time mm. and it's almost like as time passes things accrue they accrue a kind of meaning e even now i see it when i post things from childhood you know i remember the 80s as a kind of monochrome time and and i remember the boredom of it of a quite a crystal clear memory although it's obviously as subjective as everyone else's um yeah. but i remember it as quite a boring time but when i post photographs the photographs look because so much time has passed they, they look really interesting they've got mm -hmm. an even the look of the photograph whatever the camera technology has changed it has a, a kind of filtered look that's very elegiac you know it's like super eight footage almost it's sort of this dreamy shoegazy kind of world that i know it wasn't really um course, so yeah, yeah. It's, it would have been like that the way it looked would have been completely mundane at the time yeah. but now it's unusual to yeah because the palette yeah it does yeah and the, and the palette of of even interiors has changed like wallpapers changed and stuff so mm. um i think these things what we think is boring now, what we think is mass-produced now, will be these kind of fascinating relics of our time that will tell future generations lots about us. Um, and I guess the key is to see, to step out of your own time and try and get a sense of perspective and see what's actually interesting about the world we're currently living in, let alone the past. Yeah, absolutely. Does does not um, nostalgia feature at all as something you're dealing with in any way just i just ask because if i'm if i start if i would just start trying to think of like objects that are meaningful to me in some way um from my past there's inevitably going to be some sense of nostalgia there to the things that come to my mind so is, is that something you're dealing with in any way or yeah well i tried to avoid nostalgia because it has a it's a further distorting process um, yeah. but inevitably it comes in and I think I think the only real there is a nostalgia towards certain people who are no longer with us I think that's kind of inevitable and um, you do tend to lean towards being sympathetic and sentimental but I think the only real scenes where there's a lot of nostalgia there's a chapter in Street Fighter 2 uh, okay. in, in the book um, and I think that there's probably an element of nostalgia there because that was such originally that was such a, an imaginative portal anyway yeah um so we lived in a sort of very black and white street working class part of Derry. it was uh like i said before kind of monochrome and then there was a video store on the street and in the back of the video store they had like an illegal arcade machine so it felt very like you were going into the underworld to yeah. play it but it was just in the back of, you know, a little shed out the back. Uh, but they had Street Fighter 2 and the entire 
community of young young men in particular used to just congregate here and it became this arena uh, where you would go in and you know you challenge the local psychopath <laughs> to, <laughs> to games and and bet and but the actual game itself was such a portal because it was the first time I had seen something you know a very very stylized uh, yeah. view of the world but it was really my kind of access point I'd never really thought of somewhere like Thailand and you have that level in Street Fighter 2 where there's a big sleeping Buddha in yeah. the background or there's statues of Ganesha or there's Hong Kong, the Hutongs in Hong Kong are in the back of Chun-Li's uh, level and mm. it was fascinating. It was a, this portal to other worlds and, and then in later life of course you go to these places and you spend your life traveling around these places and you realize that there were accuracies there and of course there was because it's kind of cartoonish there were exaggerations um yeah but it was it was this fascinating portal and it it really set my mind i think there was a kind of wanderlust that was kind of born through that so i'm quite nostalgic towards that game and that era of gaming because mm. it was it there was a tantalizing feel to it you know it was very two-dimensional but they had these backdrops that were really fantastical, almost like you see in Renaissance paintings like Bosch. You'll see these wonderful f cities in the on the skyline, you know, imagine like imaginary cities again on the skyline, or you'll see um, sort of horrendous dystopian scenes in the background. Um, so they really got your imagination going. So I think I'm kind of nostalgic towards that side of things. But day to day life. It was too real, uh, and to, uh, and you know the, I remember the poverty being very very uh, difficult. Yeah. So I couldn't get completely nostalgic about it. There's always this counter voice I have in my head saying, you know, don't turn this into a misery memoir, but don't go too far the opposite way. Don't have a sort of oh you know the eighties nostalgia thing uh, is so huge at the minute. You yeah. don't want to get sucked into that kind of vortex. But there's there, there's a bigger question I think of in terms of nostalgia itself, the meaning of nostalgia, I understand that it's it's a sort of ancient Greek Homeric idea of co homecoming or trying to get home mm. and like the Odyssey, you know he's trying to get back he, he goes and spends you know all these years in different weird islands with strange creatures and has these adventures, barely gets home alive. And when he gets home, home is completely changed. Uh, so the the problem, I guess, with nostalgia is that you can go home, and I, I try to get back home to Derry as, as much as I can, which isn't very much. But when you go back, uh, what you realize is that home is not just a space. It's temporal as well. It's a, it's a time, and the, and the time's your childhood, and you can't go back to that. Um so you can go back home but it's almost like you're always going to be a slightly dislocated once you leave home maybe it's different for people who stay in the in the place that they're born mm. but i feel like when i go back home now and even when i was imagining it going back into the past in this book you're almost like a ghost who can't interact with mm. anyone you know or, or or like um maybe like quantum leap uh the old tv show yeah. Where you know he he he's leaping in, but he, he has a limited influence in that world, and 
he knows he's going to have to leap back out again. There's a disconnect there. So I feel a little bit like that. Yeah, sure. So I don't know how how much um, you, you you still play video games, so I, I don't know if you have an answer to this or not. But um, obviously on this on this show, we tend to focus on objects that don't actually exist, uh, as in objects that are in games that have been created. Um, yeah. It, it, does there is there any object in a video game that kind of jumps out in your mind as something that's particularly memorable or or interesting for for some reason to you? Oh, there's loads. Yeah, I still I still play a lot of games. Okay, um, cool. There's there's so many. Uh, that fascinate me. I'm, I, I guess there's, there's several types of gaming. I, I, I had a side of me that was very insular and very interior, very solitary. Um, so get you know, role playing games were, were were fascinating to me as a younger person, yeah. um, because they have that self contained world building aspect, and I used to love the kind of games where you go in and and. Uh, and you know barter and shops and stuff and between having battles and things um so those scenarios are really fascinating but on the opposite side and i mean there's obviously huge communities grow up around those games but i remember the competitive element of the kind of communal element of games has always been a thing that's really resonated with me and i have memories of being in Belfast, which is quite a troubled time in the book. There's lots of, you know, I had like, was attacked and had a gun pointed at me and then had the police like raid the place I was staying because there's an armed robber living upstairs. So <laughs> in the book, it comes across as this like really crazy time, which it was. Yeah. But there was also times where my friends and I would be sitting around, you know, playing a, um, an N64, I think it was at the time, playing Mario Kart. And it just being this really ruthless arena of uh, of probably toxic masculinity. It was just like, yeah. but hilarious and, you know, really, really endearing looking back because there was a kind of innocence to it. And we were still the kind of young kids who grew up in, in 8-bit games, 16-bit games. Um, but I always remember, I think it was a, a blue shell. Yeah. And, and Mario Kart was the one that um, was like a heat seeker. That would yeah, the, go... blue, the blue shell is the one that takes out the person in first place. Yeah. So you've got the, yeah, yeah, the, the, green, the green shell just fires wherever you point it. Then I think the red shell locks on to like whoever is like nearest, but the blue shell right. hits the person in first. Yeah, the blue the blue shell, they, they were all great. And the, that game was so hyper-competitive. Uh, mm. that I just used to love it because there was such an element of of genuine ecstatic joy when you won and just utter derision and humiliation <laughs> if you lost. But the blue shell was, it was, it was almost like, and especially when you used the blue shell as this finishing line was approaching, um, there was something about that level of schadenfreude where the person's yeah. about to win and you take them out at the last minute. Yeah. That that was so beautiful and so <laughs> tragic at the same time, but it was almost like it had such a leveling uh, ability. It reminds me of kind of like um, it's not the Angel of Death, but you get these old paintings of uh, around about the time of like Bosch and and 
Bruegel Elder, where uh, there was um, a trend to do these, uh, the death of the miser paintings, which was right. this idea that, you know, rich people could hide themselves away in their castle with all surrounded by all their wealth, but like the Grim Reaper would still get in. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there's all these paintings that Bosch has of, you know, a, a, a guy in this big ornate four poster bed. And then the Grim Reaper is like, he's, he's coming through the cracks or he's kind of peeping around the doorway and you, you can't keep him out. You know, no one can. Yeah. And uh, it's this wonderful leveler. Like, you know, we're all equal in terms of the, like the Grim Reaper. Although that's obviously not the case. Like richer people have longer lives, but. Um, yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. But yeah, the blue shell had that quality. It was, it would just reduce people to a state of kind of helplessness and vulnerability. So, yeah. So the idea of it being this sort of leveler and and the hubris of uh, almost almost like you see those uh, those old paintings from around that time and later of they called them vanitas paintings. So they were paintings of objects. Uh, like still lifes right. that were all arranged on a table and there would be a sign of wealth. So there'd be kind of like bowls of grapes or there'd be kind of like ornate jewelry and um, the kind of possessions of the owner, would, it would tell a story about the possessions, but there'd be kind of symbolic aspects to it. So you'd see wealth and beauty, but then they'd always have like a skull in the, in the middle of it um, to kind of remind you, you know, remember you will die the memento mori. Uh, thing and you see it in that in the Holbein painting, the ambassadors, the the these two kind of very stately kind of figures, and but there's an optical illusion at the side of the painting of of this huge skull. So I guess it's this sort of reminder not to get too hubristic that everyone's kind of equal in the end. Okay, well, um, thanks very much uh, for coming on and talking to us about objects Darren um so if if people are interested in your book inventory is there a particular place that's good for you to to go to to buy it from it's sold uh through penguin so it's published by Chato and windows so it should be at any good bookshop and and if it isn't then get them to order it and it's out with uh fsg in america in august i think we're going to be having some events and things there and all over the country so um yeah, at all good bookshops. Okay, cool. Well, thanks for coming on. Cheers. Thanks.